0: Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the EMG Health podcast. I'm joined this week by Jonathan Th- Sakia. Welcome, Jonathan.
1: Thank you, Spencer. Uh,
0: so, Jonathan very kindly introduced me to Montel Williams, who a lot of you will know from his uh, TV presenting days. But, Jonathan, can you tell me a little bit about Montel and and why you introduced him to us and why you why you thought he'd make a good podcast for us?
1: Sure, happy to. Um, I've known Montel for many years. Um, Having lived in America, and um, where they think having an English accent buys you 20 IQ points, um, I, I was on his show, actually, a number of years ago as a guest, uh, and then he had me back a number of times. But uh, uh, around that time, he had uh, just been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And after a show, once uh, he and I talked about it, he had natural concerns, as any human being Uh, Would with uh, a a chronic health condition. And we ended up becoming uh, dear friends. Um, I've known him, as I say, for many years, have done all sorts of activities with him, all really centered around uh, bringing uh, new technologies and new ideas uh, to people who are dealing with chronic diseases. And I just thought, given EMG uh, Health's uh, position uh, and, and reach, it would be great to have a guy like him Talk to your audience about um, issues like multiple sclerosis, like staying healthy, and, you know, quite controversial but worth discussing, um, the role of marijuana in, 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 in addressing medical conditions.
0: Thank you. And, and it, it, was, it was great to meet Montel. It was fascinating to hear about the, the use of cannabis in, in the different treatments for healthcare. Um but also fascinating to hear his background as a Navy SEAL and learning yeah. Russian and Chinese and what a fascinating guy he is.
1: Yeah, he truly is and again people tend to see folks who've been high achievers, gold medal winners, which I know is a phrase that resonates <laughs> with you. It certainly does. And they tend to see them as very one-dimensional, whether they're movie stars, television hosts, musicians and hopefully Spencer you and I can get to do Uh, other of these sort of uh, interviews, I'm fascinated by people who are high achievers, people who are really, really driven, because when those people face health issues, they tend to face them with the same vigor, aggression, commitment, and focus that they deal with other things in their life. And I think that's why they tend to be very, very good uh, advocates for people living with, with chronic health problems.
0: And you could certainly say that about Montel. You could tell that from, from the, uh, the podcast. And, and on that note, I shall, uh, I shall play the podcast.
1: Okay, welcome, everyone. Uh, this is a rather fascinating podcast that's going to be shared on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And it's immediately apparent that I am not Montel Williams, but I am sitting with Montel and um, I have the privilege of talking to him about a range of subjects that I know he's very knowledgeable and very passionate about. This is also going to be distributed through other means, hence um, why I'm here. My name is Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Uh, I'm a surgeon by background and I I also have the privilege of having known Montel as a friend for many years. So first of all, Montel, welcome.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Jonathan.
1: So first of all, share with everyone briefly Mm -hmm. Uh, some of the things you've done in your life, because you've, <laughs> you've been a busy guy.
2: Dude, we'll be here for, for hours. I, I literally, you know, I, I started my professional career in the military uh, right after leaving high school in the United States, and um, I served as a special duty intelligence officer uh, in the U.S. Navy, but I started off enlisted in the Marine Corps. So I enlisted Went to the Naval Academy in Annapolis, got my degree in general engineering, a minor in international security affairs. My language at the time at the academy was Chinese, and so of course as soon as I graduated from the academy, they sent me off to the Defense Language Institute where I studied Russian, I became a Russian linguist, and then from Russian I uh, became a special duty intelligence officer. And prior to this, current president, half the things that this guy does, had I done any one of them, had any <laughs> private meeting with any Russian person while I was on active duty, I'd be in jail even till today. Um, but I served uh, out a, a total of 22 years in the military, left military, and then you know, before I left the military, I started a program where I was speaking to kids across the country in the United States at a time when no one else had ever done this before, but I spoke in over 1,500 high schools across the country, Um, to about one and a half million young people talking to them about negative youth trends. And and I funded a non-profit organization that literally gave back what we called stipends to schools that put together programs to help kids become successful. And then that turned into a media event everywhere I was, which then turned into what ended up becoming the Web Show. So um, I ended up doing that for 17 years. And during the course of the Montel show, I, I authored eight books, um, wrote two dramatic series, and uh, actually wrote and, and directed a feature film, and then, you know, I, I kept my nonprofit. but then um, after that, I started a brand, which is called Living Well with Montel, which focuses on, you know, improving the lives of people from the inside out, if you will. I think that's probably the best way to describe it because I work on a lot of different initiatives when it comes to health. And then, you know, even in recent years, and I think for 100% complete disclosure, you know, you and I uh, were among a group of six people who were the founders of an incredible medical device company that that's is right. right now working towards getting, you know, FDA and approval around the world for, you know, traumatic brain injury, but also for, investigating other options, other opportunities.
1: Well, so. I, I also want to point out that you've missed a few things. You, you, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you were regularly on television in, uh, uh, in 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 a number of uh, dramatic and non-dramatic uh, oh, series. Oh, that's true. Um, and you've been an advocate and pretty damn good singer, and <laughs> oh, <I'm sorry. laughs> many, many other things. <laughs> um, one of the things that you, I remember you telling me about um, because of my interest in aviation, you told me that you wanted to be a, a fighter pilot and that you had an issue whilst you were in the Navy um, that led to uh, a series of events. Tell us briefly what
2: sure. happened Sure. You know, I, I, again, I started out, my military career, I started out enlisted in the Marine Corps, and you know, I went through Paris Island boot camp, and you know, I did very, very well in the, in the Marine Corps as an enlisted man. I, I was meritoriously promoted uh, three times um, that garnered me an opportunity to go to the Naval Academy prep school and the prep and then into the Naval Academy. I went to the Academy and while there, you know, four years of a pretty, you know, stringent education. We one of the only colleges in the United States that requires every member to take between 19 and 21 hours every semester. And it is an engineering degree. Everyone graduates from the Academy with a degree in engineering and you normally get to minor in something else. And so mm-hmm. My entire four years at the Academy was really focused on me eventually graduating and going back in the Marine Corps as a Marine Corps pilot. And as a matter of fact, while I was at the Academy, I participated in a program there which was a you know a civil engineering or civil aviation program where we had something called the VTNA, which is the uh, Vertical Attack Squadron for the Naval Academy. And I literally worked at getting my private pilot's license. I flew for 19 hours and then I was going to take my test. And right before that chance happened, I literally, and this is now a fact, we have records that, that verify it. You know, Right before you graduate from the Naval Academy, you get a series of pre-commissioning immunizations. And my class, which is the class of 1980 from the Academy, is the last group of people in the U.S. military to actually receive immunizations using a gun. And it was because the gun that they were using for us were standing in the line. Aye, aye, sir. You know, the first 100 guys that walked through the line, about 50 of us got an overdose because the gun was set too high of the diphtheria typhoid immunization. And remember back then they used to give you, we had diphtheria typhoid and something else. Tetanus. Tetanus. Tetanus, tetanus DTT. And uh, I think the gun was set for the first 50 guys um, somewhere around 20 times higher than it should have been set and I was one of those first 50. And it immediately sent me into, now the shot didn't cause MS, but what the shot did was it caused such an impact to my immune system that I probably had the gene that was already there that would have been MS, it would have developed itself probably 20 years later. But it sent me into what would be considered a bout. And And
1: what was was the first manifestation?
2: Oh, I went blind almost within. Three hours of the shot, I went uh, blind in my left
1: eye. Yeah, and it it recovered. It came back. Your vision Over came back. time, it's come back, yeah. but
2: not completely.
1: And you had issues had, with color blindness. I had, as bald, well. I had
2: issues with color blindness. I have what's yeah. called a, a muscatoma in my yeah, left scatoma. eye. Yeah. It's three times larger than the normal scotoma. I have what's called an afferent pupillary defect, which means my pupil reacts differently even to the day, still does to light and and darkness.
1: And whilst visual disturbances are not an uncommon first manifestation of multiple sclerosis, you weren't diagnosed because anyone who, I can't imagine that there's anyone listening who doesn't know who you are, but if they didn't know who you are, they would have probably thought you're probably not a white nor- northern European woman. <laughs> right, right, correct. Okay. And back
2: then that was the That's that was the diagnosis. If you go to you know, back then you went to the PDR or any one of right. the the desk restaurants for doctors. Look at MS and it said normally you know, seen in women of Northern European descent. yeah, And hardly ever, at that point in time, I think the only African-American that anybody had ever diagnosed was Lola Falana, yep. and Richard Pryor. Richard yep. Pryor's diagnosis was based more on the fact that he was a crackhead. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, nobody really assumed. And I, I weighed, at the time this happened, I was, I'm six foot tall, so I weighed 220. I had a 20 to 28, 29 inch waist. I was a boxer, a powerlifter. I was really, 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 really active. And so each doctor that saw me would go, can't be MS, it's got to be yeah. something else. Yeah. <laughs> and so and not only did I have the visual issues, I had some really strange pockets of pain all over my body. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: that, describe them. Mm,
2: like
1: they would come and go.
2: They would come and go, and back then they weren't as severe as yeah. they turned into. Yeah, But... It would be, And we'll talk about that yeah. in a
1: little bit. But So you were mm-hmm. having a whole series of symptoms over the years. And no one told you about had MS. Oh, wait a minute. Let's,
2: let's say when this first happened, literally the military sent me down to Walter Reed. I was in Walter Reed. I was at Bethesda. I went to Johns Hopkins. I went to the Walls Eye Clinic. Mm-hmm. I went to the Wilmer Eye Clinic. I went to some of the best specialists in the U.S. military. It was spending a lot of money to graduate me as a naval officer and was ready to lose me as a naval officer. As a matter of fact, three of the people who were overdosed never got commissioned. Mm-hmm. And my commission was postponed. Um, for six months I was put on a medical hold right. because they didn't think that I was going to recover. Now, I should back up and tell you that I went blind in my left eye, my vision went from 20-20, perfect vision, to 2,600 in my left eye, 20 in my right. Mm-hmm. And then it stayed there until mm, four months after the shot. And then it started to slowly come back. And some of the irritation in my optic nerve started to settle down. Yeah. And it settled back in at around 2100. And... That put me in a position that the military could then go ahead and employ me, but they employed me in what was considered an MPQ status, which is not physically qualified status, which okay. meant that I had to literally pursue one of two jobs, either a supply corps officer
1: mm-hmm.
2: or they told me because of your language skills, you know, we could get you into this little area that's called special duty intelligence as a, excuse me, as a cryptologic officer. Right. So I went, okay, let's do that.
1: Beats the hell out of being a supply officer.
2: Yeah, beats the hell out of being a supply officer. And so, um, now, I'm supposed to be not physically qualified, but when I got into the job as a a special duty intelligence officer, I ended up spending more time at sea and in, you know, combat areas than any of my peers did because – you know, the job that I had I ended up I have well over three hundred and twenty days under the water. Mm-hmm. I have about three hundred and sixty days on the water on almost every platform that the US military has to offer. I did three submarine trips that were, you know, no shorter than seventy five days and the longest one was 90 days hatch to hatch. Mm-hmm. That's when you go in, they close yeah. the hatch. They don't open that hatch for 90 days, my friend. Yeah. Um, uh, to, you were,
1: you're not getting me, me in one of those things. But oh, you saw your way through your military career. Yes. You then went out on the speaking circuit. Saw my way through my military yeah. career,
2: going to a doctor almost every six to eight months. And not getting diagnosed. Not being diagnosed. So the mm-hmm. share with
1: people who are listening when you were diagnosed and what, and what led to that and what it felt
2: like. Well, what's really crazy, is I went uh, this this shot took place in 1980. I literally stayed on active duty till 1991 and a half, um, and then I got out of the military. I stopped. I walked away from the military, and I uh, started my career, you know, um, in television. And it was in really 1999. I woke up one morning, and I again every couple of months I would have some really anomalous, strange neurological issue, whether it be tingling in my hands, you know, light tingling in my feet, pain in my side, and it was like a it was like a, a stabbing pain. I, I could be sitting here talking to you, and it felt like somebody took a razor blade and would slice me in my side. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I feel down there, and there's nothing. Go to a doctor, and two days later, it was gone anyway. So I don't to explain it. You know, I can't tell you what's going on, but something's weird happening here. Nobody could explain it. And then I woke up one morning literally on an airplane <clears throat> when I was flying to Utah I'll never forget it. and I woke up I got on a plane early I went to sleep before it even took off and my feet went on fire I literally it felt like I my feet were burning
1: which and is not an unusual manifestation of neuropathic pain it's a burning whilst uh, you're getting electric shocks yes
2: yeah Almost almost to the point that I, I described, I remember describing it back then as if somebody took a, a fire poker and set it in the fire, then took it out of the fire and just jammed it up in my heel and just started digging it around.
1: So and you went could, to see someone?
2: Went to see a doctor. And, and really, it just so happened that that trip, I was literally going to, I was flying out to shoot an episode of, a, of an old television series that was called Touched by an Angel. And uh, I was going to stay with a friend of mine who was a doctor in Utah, when I literally walked, rolled up to his house, got out of the car, he said to my then ex-wife, um, or now ex-wife. Yeah, now ex-wife. Yeah, now yeah, ex-wife. ex-wife. He said to her, I think he's got MS. I, he just said it out of the blue and set me up with, to go see a doctor the next day. I went the next morning, and the pain was so excruciating, I could not even really, I didn't want to put my feet on the floor. Yeah. Um, I didn't want anybody touching me, mm-hmm. um, coming near me, and... Uh, you know i went through the whole 2 hour in the office you know pricking me uh, pricking me with pins and sticking me with little needles and the whole nine yards and he walked away literally just said you know what i'm positive you have an ass and walked out the door
1: mm-hmm. i remember I, when you and i talked after you were diagnosed that um, the brutality quite frankly oh. of the way that you were treated and the expectations that you had that your life was going to you know, prepare for a wheelchair. Prepare for a catheter. Yeah, um, you go, if you
2: go back and look at the literature back in you know 1999, even then the literature really for doctors was that this is a, di- di- a diagnosis for women of of you know Northern European descent, and they had four or five categories that they said. Mm-hmm. And African American males was in the worst category. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the first line in that that literature this clown gave me, this doctor gave me, was that you know I could expect my life expectancy to be shortened by 15. percent. I was like, what? You know I'm reading this this garbage and and literally it just was a a paragraph that basically said stand by to die.
1: Yeah. Well, I I really want to focus on the positives, Montel, because yes. you're one of the most positive people sure. uh, that I know. And
2: well, it was they, that second that made me be positive. That you, I said, listen, I mean, you didn't know me when I walked in here. Yeah. So how dare you think you have a crystal ball and have the ability to prognosti- prognosticate and figure out what I'm going to be like tomorrow? You don't even know what I was like yesterday. So how do you know what I'm going to be like tomorrow? Exactly. And, yeah.
1: I remember. Um, and uh, I'm sure you do as well the uh, public service announcements mm-hmm. that you made and one said um, I have MS MS doesn't have me Absolutely. and I know that you were such a an inspiration to many patients I would just like to tell a brief story yeah. and then maybe that will inspire you yeah. while you have a sip of your very nice coffee mm. um, Uh, maybe inspire you to tell us about some of the advocacy things that you that you've done and are doing for patients with MS you and I were having lunch together with some other folks in New York a bunch of years ago and a very nicely dressed gentleman came over apologized for disturbing you Um, and he clearly wasn't just autograph hunting he told you that he had MS and that he had really struggled with his diagnosis and had felt suicidal and you gave him a big hug he had given you his business card And you wrote your cell phone number on the back and gave it back to him and said, if you ever feel bad, call me, because I know that's the kind of guy you are. But that was touching one person. Tell us about some of the things you're doing to touch hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people living with neurologic disease.
2: Well, you know, the very first thing I did was I I, I realized this is something that's been just a, a piece of who I am. I don't believe you can't solve a problem without knowledge. And so the first thing I did when I was in that doctor's office, and he has me one piece of paper, I literally went berserk. The internet was just starting back then. We really hadn't had the internet that we have today. And I literally went up on the internet, went to the library. I tried to look up everything I could look up and find when it came to MS, because I figured, you know, I'm going to have to be my own advocate here. If people are telling me that I'm the only black person that they know that they diagnosed this way. Then that means that they don't know anything about black people with MS. So I better know something. So... I literally got busy learning and trying to, my best to figure out if I could learn things that could help me mitigate some of my symptoms and figure out how to thrive with MS rather than succumb to it and just do what this guy wanted me to do is go home and, and let my life waste away. And I think every interview that I did, and it, it was pretty traumatic. I mean, I'm, here I am, you know, nationally syndicated television show host. I was on the air at that point in time for nine years. I just won an Emmy. I'm on the cover of many magazines. I'm doing my own dramatic series on network television. And a lot of people who were following me who immediately realized I had MS, there were a lot of those people who were my viewers who were at home every day that were told that they can't do anything except for sit at home. And I wanted to make sure that I reached out to them and set an example to say, you know, the more knowledge you have and the more you – I still think to today, I, I, you, you know, with knowledge you cannot be denied, mm-hmm. and so you know the more knowledge you have, one eases the ideas that other people may set to set a standard for you. You know, I, I never believe in living up to or down to anybody else's expectation, but my own. Yeah, and so you know when people, you go to a doctor's office and the doctor says X, Y, Z, and I'm not, I'm not knocking you, Jonathan. I love you. You know, you know, I do, but you know, if doctors were God, none of us would be sick and there's none of them that are gods. And so, you know, I think, uh, if we really, really stop and think about it, no matter whether or not you're afflicted by this disease in a way that, you know, it can take away your mobility, it can take away your synaptic connections to, to, to make you unable to walk. To me, well I'm unable to stand, unable to sleep, unable to do so many things. But if you have the ability to move one finger, then why not figure out how to move that finger better than anything?
1: Yeah, you got it, man. And and I know that your advocacy for yourself. You can't be an advocate mm-hmm. for other people unless you're an advocate Correct. for yourself. And, Absolutely. And you are. And thinking about thinking about your physical fitness. You've always been a guy in, into fitness, right? And um, again, people may not know, but it's just over a year ago that you had a cerebellar stroke. Yes, sir. And uh, I saw you in hospital. Major one. Yeah, and yeah. You, you were, it was not pretty. And yeah. you got better. Um, I'm not, I am not—I don't want to focus on any of the treatments. I just want to make the comment that you got better because you were determined to get better. No question. And you were utterly focused. And that's the key thing. So going back to this fitness uh, business, how does a guy who is um, a military officer, military background, your, your parents were no slouches. They yeah. were very, very disciplined people. Um, your father was a firefighter. How does a guy with a military background, a very strong moral compass, right, publicly as well as privately, who's into physical fitness, how does he suddenly get to start using marijuana?
2: Hey, let, me, let me tell you a very interesting one. I would say from this point. Because marijuana-
1: just a wild night with you at dinner, if you have a glass of wine, thats mm-hmm. your, you're really letting your hair down.
2: And I want to tell you, right now, last two nights ago was the first night that I've had a sip of alcohol in a year and a half. Mm-hmm. I literally stopped drinking the day a doctor came to me. And I, I, Let me back up. Uh, that diagnosis of MS happened in Utah. I went and got, got it backed up. With a second diagnosis, making sure it was true, it had a doctor in Harvard, and I won't give his name, but um, you know he's he's considered one of the top doctors in the field of MS, and you know I addressed the fact that I had such neuropathic pain that that it was literally almost unbearable, and I'm not knocking him, but what's the normal thing and what's been the normal pathway that doctors had uh, over the course of the last 20 years. They started diagnosing or, no, sorry, prescribing opioids. Well, for that first year and a half of my diagnosis, I think I went through almost every opioid on the planet and found out after a year that I have a little bit of an aversion to opioids. I'm not as susceptible to them as other people are. So what would require, you know, most people could take two of something. I was taking five and six. And at a point where... You know, I was chasing doctors to get prescription filled. And unfortunately, you know, as a, as a celebrity, I had an opportunity to pick up the phone and call any doctor I knew. And they'd write a script for me no matter where I was. So I was taking back then. I don't give out the names of drugs because I'm not going to put down any other drug. Those drugs will all have a purpose. And if they're used correctly, they can actually help people. Absolutely. When they're used incorrectly in the way we've done so in the United States, Mm -hmm. they can become as deleterious as they have become. Yeah. Uh, But I pushed it to the point where I want to tell you that do I call myself an opioid addict? I I probably was back before it was vogue to say that. I know I was. If If I could take seven of one particular pill in a day and not drool in a corner, there's something wrong with me. And I was taking seven and eight of these things. And- Every time I ran out, I would literally go back to one particular doctor and say, look, dude, I, I, I dropped these. I, I dropped them in the toilet. I dropped them in the sink. They got wet. Yeah. You know, I, I destroyed some. And as a really good friend, he said, I'm done with you. I'm not writing anymore. Um, I know what you're doing. I know the other doctors you're talking to because some of them called me. And they're not writing you any scripts anymore anyway. So you have to figure this out, Montel. There's no reason for you to be taking that much. So I suggest something to you. I'm not going to ever say that I told you this. I will never admit this. But I heard from a couple of patients who have MS symptoms like yours that they've gotten some relief by using this marijuana. And let let me explain to you how crazy this is. This is in 1991 this doctor who knew nothing about cannabis at all, nothing, mm-hmm. said, and I heard that there's this type of cannabis that's at CB something. There's some weird type of cannabis. Not the same thing that everybody else uses, but it's a weird kind. What he was trying to say was that there was different cannabinoids, and one of those cannabinoids is something called CBD, and we found that CBD has an analgesic, anti-inflammatory effect, but back then they didn't know that. It wasn't as published and widely read, but he heard something about this. Now, back in this is back in 1991. No, sorry, sorry, 2001.
1: 2001, right? I
2: started looking for CBD-rich cannabinoids in right. cannabis. This be, I remember, Sanjay Gupta just did a special five years ago, which now all of a sudden people think that was like a light bulb went off. I'm talking almost 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. I was looking for cannabinoids in the CBD spectrum that I knew would help to impact my pain. And the first time I found a strain that was, you know, and back then, again, we weren't growing cannabis. And there's a lot, there's so much to cannabis history that needs oh, to we're be we're going to come on be, oh, to that, trust yeah, me. We, we really have to talk about it because, I mean, one of one of the issues that we had was, you know, from about the 1960s through the middle of the 70s, America, and I'm going to blame us for a lot of the the, the misinformation and a lot of the the poor cannabis that's out there in the world today, but a lot of growers of cannabis in the United States try to breed the CBD out of the plant. Mm-hmm. They try their best to, to breed a plant that was the highest in THC, THC that they yeah. could pro- produce. Not knowing that, contrary to popular beliefs, and I'm going to say this right now, people are going to go, oh, you can't be telling the truth. THC is not the only cannabinoid responsible for euphoria. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that they all work together in an entourage effect. And
1: there's you can, many of them.
2: And there's many of them. Right now, there's research in, in Canada that claims that there's 165 yeah. or more cannabinoids out of Israel. The doctor who's responsible for actually having identified CBD, THC, and the endocannabinoid system is a doctor by the name of Raphael Meshulam, who 16 years ago discovered and said that THC, Delta 9, was the active ingredient that... Caused most of the euphoria, but it requires an entourage effect of all the other cannabinoids working work together. together.
1: But you started using this so at around 2001. 2001, and, 2001. I mean, and you were you were using it in in a
2: vaporized form, right? Back then, two thousand one, I literally I first started actually smoking yeah. cannabis.
1: Yeah, and then and you and smoking—that's not going to be found no, in the same. I,
2: it was you know I was actually smoking a leaf, and then I realized after I started digging into this myself, that if I switched over and started actually smoking something that was called the keef, which is, lack of a better term, the pollen mm-hmm. of the plant, the pollen in the flower, that pollen is the most rich. In the CBD. Yeah, it's no. not only CBD, but in all the cannabinoids. It's no. very, very rich in cannabinoids. So I started smoking only the pollen. Then I realized that I could vaporize that pollen and get a better extraction out of it. So back then, this is back in 2002, 2003, and Mm -hmm. people uh, went nuts because the German government approved a product that was called a volcano. That was this device that they were actually using in a few hospitals that would actually capture the vapor in a big plastic bag, and that big plastic bag could be hung on an IV pole. And they were allowing patients back in 2002 and 2003 to utilize, you know, on the side, Cannabis in a hospital.
1: So let me tell you, back when I trained, so when I trained, mm-hmm. there was no education, there was no knowledge about the endocannabinoid system, and that the human body is actually tuned to react to it. Mm-hmm. I have to tell you that now, the medical system is still not up to um, uh, up to snuff and up to snuff. <laughs> Inadvertent, <laughs> right? You and I need to have a conversation about what we can do. Um, uh, to, to educate people about, and to educate doctors. But I will tell you- You nailed it. That
2: education, the, education, education, education. Education of everyone.
1: Just, just doctors, like real estate, patients, location, location, t- education. location, location, education. Location, location, education. I will tell you that when we were training, one of my teachers, when I was a house officer, told us about the value of smoking marijuana mm-hmm. uh, for patients who were dealing with intractable pain or yes. nausea uh, especially with cancer, chemotherapy. And I can tell you as a house officer, I would talk to patients about it. But, you know, it's like, why not? These poor people are in pain or are vomiting. That sucks. That's right. And I want to come on to, um, tell us a little bit about the history of how the cannabis plant came to be demonized in the United States. Because it's a fascinating story.
2: Well, people need to understand. Cannabis, if you, is one of the oldest written about medical substances on the planet. First written about 5,000 years ago in Chinese documents, a pharmacopoeia of medical plants. And over the course of the last 5,000 years, cannabis has been acknowledged for its medical benefits. There were times in history where, you know, let's go back to something very factual that people don't understand. You know, the three wise men Bought the baby Jesus, incense, frankincense, and myrrh. Yes. Well, look up what frankincense is. Yes. Frankincense is a cannabis plant. Uh. If the three wise men thought it was good enough to give to the baby Jesus, <laughs> excuse me. Yeah, well. I'm, just, I'm just saying. We're,
1: we're not going to get into getting, I'm not getting cannabis get, to I'm, kids. I'm
2: not, no, but, but, yeah. but think about that. It was, let's go back in time for a minute. Go back 2,000 years ago when, you know, we didn't have nice porcelain bathrooms. You didn't have water that was, you know, coming out of pipes. People were going out in the field grabbing a leaf. Life was tough, you know, and 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 when they discovered a substance that had so many different usages, and the people don't understand, the term cannabis comes from cannabis. Back in time, we used cannabis or hemp and hemp, and let's get this straight: the hemp plant and the, and the cannabis plant are the same plant. One yeah. flowers, the other one doesn't. Uh-huh. Okay, so the hemp plant is what we utilize. All over the world for clothing, for ropes.
1: And there was a, there's a link to, in American history to the American Civil War.
2: Oh, let's back up before the Civil War. The entire Revolutionary Army, George Washington, stopped around Motel, in a I'm, uniform. I'm,
1: I'm, an, I'm an Englishman. Let's not go there. Okay. Well, yeah. on, that's going <laughs> to well, be
2: uncomfortable. But, but, okay. Well, but, I, but I, let's just tell you this, that in the United States of America, when it was first started, you were considered a traitor, if you were a farmer and you did not grow hemp. Every ship that sailed in the world, the sails were made of hemp fiber. Every rope on a ship was made of hemp. And part of the reason why, even even when you were a sailor, the only thing you could mutiny about was if the captain of the ship didn't give you your ration of rope. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, my boy's out at sea getting rained on every day, eating funky bad fish, hanging his butt over the end of a, of a, the, the ship, going to the bathroom, and wiping himself with his hand. You know, stop and think about it for a second. How do you get people to do that every single day and do it comfortably? If you had a little euphoria while you're out there hanging out, it makes things go by a little quicker.
1: Yeah, well, you know— we could come on to the adult uses of uh, this, but I think that's subject for 10 more podcasts, okay, right? Okay,
2: let's back up. How about just, just the fact that people used to eat because we know that the hemp plant and the cannabis plant is one of the highest protein-laden seeds on the planet. Most human beings ate hemp porridge every day. Didn't get mm-hmm. a euphoria because you don't get a euphoria from, from consuming marijuana unless you heat it up. Mm-hmm. You know, THC... Is in a form inside the plant called THCA, which is a THC acid. That acid does not make you give you a euphoria. You can eat hemp plants all day long if mm. you don't heat them. Well, you let's come them. on
1: to the the hemp, the the link between hemp as a fiber. Yes, and the um, criminalization of yes. the plant because it's so, a great story. So,
2: jump three hundred years, two hundred years later, you know, and throughout the entire plantation rule world, throughout the Wild West. People consumed and smoked marijuana on a regular basis. They did so because, again, life was tough out there. And rather than drinking alcohol all day long, people actually chose that, made that their choice. Now, roll into hmm, 1900. And I cannot remember the exact date of Prohibition, the first date of Prohibition when the United States made alcohol illegal. There was one of the leaders of this entire movement was a guy by the name of, uh, he's either Harry or Henry Anslinger. Anslinger was the guy who back then, in the early 1900s, was appointed as, if you will, our drug czar. And he actually was a supporter of cannabis during and throughout the entire period of uh, Prohibition because he figured if people needed an alternative, this was a safer one, more less violent alternative. But then as soon as Prohibition was lifted, He decided that because, and it wasn't just him that decided this, he had some very, very, very wealthy backers, one by the name of William Randolph Hearst and the other one by the name of DuPont, and DuPont looking to make sure that he could actually capture the textile industry, and William Randolph Hearst was after chopping down every big tree he could find to produce more and more wood. And let's remember that hemp is a weed. Mm -hmm. Throw it in the field, I don't have to go out and and pay attention to it. It grows on itself. So you had a fiber that was being used back then for sails, rope, and even, let's tell you this, Henry Anslinger, or Harry Anslinger, worked his tail off to make sure that cannabis became an illegal substance, but the only way he could do that was to vilify it, because so many people enjoyed it. So he had to vilify it by saying that the only reason why it's here is because those Mexicans and those darkies that we had out in the field working, that we gave cannabis to to keep them in the field. Think about this. How the hell would you think if you're a slave that you're going to be out in the field in 100-degree weather picking something all day long without a little euphoria? They didn't care. That the slaves were using it, so they tried to point to slaves and Hispanics, and even change the name from cannabis to marijuana because they are associating it with back then. The term Mary Jane was a term used for what was a derogatory consum- term, derogatory right? term yeah. used to represent you know South American prostitutes. Mm-hmm.
1: So, so he came up with a very, very clever public relations strategy. Evil. Produced but.
2: this movie that made sure that every villain in the movie was of dark skin. And even there, is, there are records of Henry Anslinger standing on the steps of the Capitol saying that cannabis makes white women want to have sex with black men and, and Hispanics, using the derogatory term for black men and Hispanics, and would make a black man step on a white man's shadow. Mm-hmm. This is out of his yeah. mouth. Yeah. And the country jumped aboard it and they decided bought it. they bought it. Yeah. And then for the next 35 years, he worked to make sure that the U.N. banned hemp worldwide until 1961, 62. So the whole world followed suit because of a racist attitude in the United States. It had nothing to do with the fact that this was some sort of a, a chemical that was going to injure people or hurt people. And as a matter of fact, in the entire history of marijuana until recently, There has never been a death from marijuana consumption. Now recently, because again, some unscrupulous people have decided to mix some really deleterious chemicals together in the black market way, and I have been a huge proponent of making sure that the government steps in, and all governments step in, and set standards for how we produce and replicate and and actually distribute the product.
1: Which is what you're doing now. I mean, you're taking a gain. Huge surprise. You're taking a leadership position in uh, advocacy. I know. I started um, that back in 2001, yeah. and, 2002. And, th- you know, folks should know that you are probably or certainly uh, responsible for the legalization of the medical use of this plant across how many states now I, in I, the I, United I, States?
2: I it's right now 34 states 34. and the District of Columbia. But I literally have testified before, helped write or helped work on the legislation in 12 of those states myself. Yeah. And internationally? What, what are you doing internationally? internationally I literally have spoken in Israel on multiple occasions. I've spoken in Jamaica on multiple occasions. I've been invited to do conferences all over the world about cannabis and its effect and why it's a viable substance that should be considered for medical use.
1: So there are some companies making um, pharmaceutical grade, if you will. And I don't want to mention sure, names. Right. but. Countries in the world, name a few that have legalized its use for medical use, not the adults. I'm going
2: to say Great Britain, right? I mean, Great Britain, England has has had a company that is a a British-based company that has been one of the forerunners. I'm not necessarily as supportive of their technique Mm -hmm. and what they do, but they've created a a compound that they literally put through the rigors of FDA approval and got FDA approval for recently. Because it it works. Because it does work. The marijuana plant or the cannabis plant has right now anywhere between 66 and maybe well over 300 cannabinoids, phytocannabinoids, phytocomponents that literally have some form of medical effect. We should be researching those to find out what they are. But, you know, when you talk about CBD, there's THC, there's THCA, there's CBD, um, CBDV, there's CBG, CBN and the numbers go on and on and on and when you put together the doctor who discovered all this again this is a guy named Raphael Mashulam and he discovered this based on research that he did that was funded by the United States over the last 20 years in Israel and for those listening who don't know this the US government Gave itself the patent
0: know, for CBD,
2: which is absolutely ridiculous well, that they could do that and claim to own the patent. You
1: know, you and I have held conversations in the past about um, what do they say that uh, a country gets the leaders it deserves, mm-hmm. and uh, any man who seeks political office is by definition ill-suited to hold it. As we yeah. head to wrapping this up, Montel, sure. I'm, I'd like like you to think about what do you think some of the other. Global health challenges that we face globally. So this is being, this is coming to people from uh, from London mm-hmm. in England, which is still part of the United Kingdom, and at the moment still part of Europe. Lord knows where that's going to take us. Uh, but
2: a little earlier today, they made some decision there. Hopefully, yeah, it will well, be ratified. Yeah, yeah, I'm
1: I'm not holding my breath. Good. But but you you travel extensively. Mm-hmm. You were just in elsewhere in Europe. Um, What do you see as some of the global health challenges that we as responsible people should be addressing? I just
2: spoke at a conference at the UN uh, three weeks ago on the rising cost of what is considered, um, you know, health care and... um, Sorry, I just skipped the word, lost the word in my brain. But uh, for various illnesses that are right now, you know, systemic all over the world. You know, everything from osteoarthritis to, you know, the fact that, you know, we still have a large population, even though the United States has fought it, but a lot of smokers out here in this world right now. And our alcohol consumption is extremely high in the world. One of the biggest issues right now is trying to make chronic illness, that's all right, that's I was looking for, but, you know, trying to make chronic illness affordable. And one of the things that people have not noticed is that, you know, countries like Israel, Israel made cannabis a geriatric drug. If you turn age seventy, you can walk into one of five different hospitals down there, show them your ID card, and they will give you your first prescription of cannabis. And what have they seen happen when they do that? The second they give a seventy-year-old or older cannabis, they start to reduce the number of other drugs that they need. Yeah. So what we should be doing, I think, you know, the biggest issue right now, there's, there's a couple of when it comes to healthcare. One, expectation. In the United States, we are still spending about 66% of every dollar spent on health care is spent for people who are in their last two to three months of life. We're spending 66% of our health care dollars on people who are 80 and older. And I'm not – well, I, mean, I, I love I – my, my mother just passed away. And I know no, your mother has no. been in poor health. My mom passed away. My mom passed away. She had, had already had a, lo- a lobe removed. A lobe, and she lung cancer had come back in another lobe. She had cancer in her throat. She also had uh, she died of, of really heart failure, congestive heart failure. Uh, she had a pacemaker that had been there for twelve years. She was eighty six years, eighty five years old when she passed away. Now, about three weeks before she now three months before she passed, she went to the doctors, and the doctors sat down with her and my dad. In a room and said, "Well, I think if we do this operation and that operation and this that, and that, you know, we can probably, you know, get some success out of this and extend your life." She said, "What? Well, extend my life? How long? Maybe three, four months." And she looked at my father and looked at that doctor and said, "I'm done. Stop it. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do this." And literally went home and that day told my my dad, "I'm staying here for about the next month, but then you are put me in hospice." Mm-hmm because I don't need to go through this. Why am I going to go out the door spending a million and a half on an operation that's going to give me three or four more days laying in a bed hooked up to tubes?
1: Well, that's why lifespan is only part of the equation, health span.
2: Health span no question.
1: And we should, you know, I think a takeaway message whenever I speak to you is that by taking ownership of your health, I Correct. mean like what part of the term your health don't you understand? Correct. Take ownership empower yourself, and make decisions. I actually, um, I went through the process of defining what my end of life situation mm-hmm. is, and I'm damn specific about what will and will not happen. And I was told by the attorney, well, I think you should let your children make the decision. And I said, the last yeah, thing I want. The, actually, some, there are some days where I think they would decide, pull the plug oh, now. Sure, right. Pull it now. Well, you
2: know, we have this whole thing where we're trying to hold uh, companies responsible for their carbon footprint. Yeah. Why can't we hold the individual responsible for your health care footprint? I love I mean, that. Why is it that we don't take the time right now to say to people, and, you know, they argue about the rising cost of health care in the United States. Well, if we sell people in the United States, listen to me. I'm going to start giving you credits for what you do to make yourself healthier. So how about if I notice that over the course of the last five years of your life, well, this last year and coming to doctor's visits – You've increased, and I can do this. I can check you now because I can give you a Fitbit, or give you something to wear around your wrist, and I know if you've exercised at least three to four days a week. Yeah. Well, if you've exercised three to four days a week, and I noticed that your cholesterol levels changed because you actually took my advice and you lowered you know, the bad food and the processed foods that you're yeah. eating, you started eating a little bit better. And then I noticed that you started to pay attention to things like your own mindfulness and took a break every now and then and rested a little bit, truly, truly rested, why should I not give you credit because you're not impacting the healthcare system? Look, I'm a sixty-three year old man who just had a stroke a year ago, year and a half ago. I have MS. I'm supposed to be costing the healthcare system in the United States of America well over two hundred thousand dollars a year. That's what I'm supposed to be costing it. But I see a doctor now once every six months. I just saw one three months ago and they told me they didn't want to see me now for another year. So that means that my out-of-cost expense on the medical medical system in the United States is probably under twenty grand a year. It should be well over two hundred thousand a year. Why don't I get some credit for that? I Since I'm not costing you, you anything, I if I'm not, if I can continue to do that, agree with you. I should have. You know, we do you know this thing called? I, I just spoke at an event i uh, always speaking everywhere. About three weeks ago, one of the biggest, the Hackensack medical community out of New Jersey, yeah, yeah. which is one of the biggest you know, medical conglomerates in the New Really big, yeah. right? I spoke to him and the, the CEO was sitting in the room and I said, you know what? You've heard about something called Bitcoin, right? Mm-hmm. Well, how about this? I'm going to give you one. You can have this. Take this and run with it. Why don't you create something called health Bitcoins? Where if I save money by not seeing a doctor, and not because I'm afraid to see a doctor, but because my health is such that I don't have to see you and you don't have to do anything to me, why don't you give me some credits like in these health bits? And then I can use those health bits when I come in to pay for the services that I need to have.
0: You know, you some,
1: have- some health insurance companies do do that. You know, my health More insurance need to. company, they, they do. They gave me one of these Apple Watches and then they encourage me. I get free membership of a gym and all the rest. But you're absolutely right. You know… In wrapping up, I want one one empowering sentence you can give everyone who's listening. One thing that they can take away, write it out on a piece of paper, stick it on their refrigerator, look at it every morning, and said, "I'm doing that because Montel Williams said so." How about right?
2: you alone own the definition of who you are?
1: I love it, Montel Williams. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Bless you. Thank um, you sir. You're a wonderful guy. Thanks, my friend. And I hope everyone enjoyed this. Remember to tune in for the next episode where Montel Williams will be the host. (laughs) Bye for now.